0: Turning your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. Actually, if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. Um, There should be some ushers coming along the side with some Bibles. Uh, Just slip up your hand if you could use a Bible. John chapter 17. You know, uh, last week we began a series on prayer called Let Us Pray. We're really creative with our series titles. Um, We're we're focusing on praying in various ways and one thing I found is as I was praying for the lost to be saved last week, God put one opportunity after another in front of my path, people who uh, I was able to share the gospel with. And I trust that that's your story In a growing sense, uh, pray that the lost will be saved. This morning, we turn our focus on prayer, and we look at John chapter 17, the first 26 verses. Tell you what, what I'm going to do, this is is a prayer that Jesus prayed, and there's a part of me that wanted to just read a portion of it this morning, the portion that we're going to zoom in on, but then I felt, nah, this is a prayer that Jesus Himself prayed, The high priestly prayer. And so, if you will, allow me to read the entire prayer, all 26 verses, and listen to Jesus pray. Start with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. with you before the world existed i have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word now they know that everything you have given me is from you for i have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in and have come to know in truth that i came from you And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me and I have guarded them and not let one of them been uh, has been lost except the son of destruction who is Judas by the way that the scripture might be fulfilled but now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world that they that that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves i have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as i am not of the world that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Father, we ask that you speak to us through Jesus' prayer. Let us see how Jesus prays. Let us see the love and passion with which he prays, and let us realize that he's praying for us. And then may we follow his own example and pray that saints may be edified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, our title this morning of the sermon is Pray That the Saints May Be Edified. Now, I realize that two of those words are words that you use about as much as you may use the word lest or alas. Saints and edified. So let me just break these words down for you really quickly and explain to you why I chose those two words for my title. Saints. I wonder what you you think of when you hear the word saints. If you're a football fan, you might think of the city New Orleans. We are not praying this morning that the New Orleans saints may be edified. All right? So that you football fans, especially you Ravens fans who are wondering why I was talking about the the saints being... We're not praying for the saints this morning. Uh, Those saints... Uh, We're also not just talking about a few very godly men uh, who the church has called saint, such as St. Augustine or St. Francis. We're using the word saint in the same way the Bible uses the word saint, and that is to refer to all who are true believers in Christ, men and women who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, true believers. Now, why not use the word Christians? Well, we will, and I'll use that interchangeably, but the reality is There are false Christians. There are no false saints. Saint is a reference for someone who is a true believer, someone who is an adopted child of God. So pray that the saints may be edified. Just think of edifice, a building. The word edifying the Bible literally means to build up or to build a building. So the picture here is that we are a building and you are a block, all right? So I'm going to call you a block this morning. I hope that that, that's okay with you. Pray that the saints, true believers in Christ, will be edified or built up as a building. Now what we have here before us is absolutely extraordinary as we see Jesus praying my goal as we get into this, this prayer, this passage, is this. Um, as we're talking about praying for this, that, that the saints may be edified, that we will pray with our heads lifted up. We talked about last week how we often pray uh, as spiritual navel gazers. We pray as babies who just found their belly button and we can't take our heads off of ourselves in our praying, Right? In our narcissistic, check my status, Facebook sort of culture, a my needs culture, we often pray in the same way. My concern is that the narcissistic culture of the world affects our prayer culture. So how do you pray? Those of you who do pray, how do you pray? Do you mostly pray that your needs will be met, that pains will be taken care of? issues that you're facing, problems, feelings, challenges that you're going through. Now, all of that is good. Yes, yes and yes. We are to pray that our needs will be met. All right, we are commanded to pray for our daily bread. My concern is that we stop right there. We look at ourselves, we look at our own spiritual belly buttons when we pray. My concern is that we often pray in the same way that we look at our own picture. All right, so be honest. If somebody were to show you a picture with you and five others in a group, 90% of the time you're looking at that picture. Who are you looking at? And if you look good, you're happy. If you look bad, you're embarrassed. But friends, it's okay. Because the other five people are looking at themselves anyway. They haven't even looked at you yet. And we pray in the same way. Alright? We know that there are other people in our lives. We know that there are other people in this world, others for whom Christ has died, yet we can only look at ourselves. Isn't that concerning? My prayer, my hope through going through really this whole series is just that we might lift up our heads and see the horizon of God's activity in this world. So last week, of course, we talked about praying for the lost, that the lost might be saved from that kingdom of darkness and brought into the glorious light. And today, we're talking about praying that the saints may be edified. So what we have as I've stated in front of us, is absolutely extraordinary. It is a conversation between two members of the the Trinity. One member of the Trinity talks to another member of the Trinity. Now, did you know that as Jesus was praying, He prayed for you? Did you know that in the Bible we have a record of Jesus praying Praying for you. We see this right there in verse 20. He says, I'm not just praying for these, meaning those that are currently alive following him, but he says, but I also am praying for those who will believe through their word. You, us, if you have repented, turned from your sins, and you've believed that Christ is your only hope and you've received Christ, here Jesus is praying for you. Now, in this moment, as Jesus is praying this prayer, we must remember that he is merely hours from his own crucifixion. All right, so let's, let's set this prayer in context. Jesus is not sitting on a couch drinking a cup of coffee, praying this prayer. Jesus is not feeling great uh, on vacation, at the beach, praying this prayer. But in this moment, Jesus has blood trickling down His forehead in the form of sweat as He considers what is to come. This is the last lengthy prayer that Jesus prays in His life here on this earth. This is uh, prayed merely hours before Jesus was put to death by professional killers who would in a few hours be Whipping his back with the cat of nine tails, leaving his back shredded, flesh hanging onto bone. This prayer is prayed a, merely a few hours before a crown of thorns would be pressed into his skull. This prayer is prayed merely a few hours before spikes would be driven through his hands and through his feet, nailed to a cross, lifted as a spectacle, naked for all to see, and dropped into the ground. And, friends, Jesus prays for you. I mean, I don't know about you, but if it was me and I knew what Jesus knew, my head would be focused on my belly button. <laughs> I would be looking at myself. Just help me get through this. Help it to not be too painful. Right? But his final lengthy time of quiet time, if you would, with, with the Father before he goes to what is the very worst that any man has experienced, not only an excruciating death, but the sins of all of God's people placed upon him, bearing the judgment for that sin, he lifts up his head and he sees the horizon of God's activity and Jesus here in his final prayer prays that the saints may be built up. He prays for you. He prays for us. He prays for all who will believe on his name. Now, as he begins his prayer, before he gets to us, he starts with the glory of God. Look at verse 1. He says, Father, the the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The time has come. Let's be glorified. G. Campbell Morgan says, the deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God, and then the saving of men because that is for the glory of God. You see, in our narcissistic culture, we think God is primarily about me. God is primarily about His own glory. Before we talk about praying for the saints to be edified, we must talk about why God wants the saints to be built up in the first place. Why does God want to build up Christians at all? In the 16th century, uh, there was uh, the, the Protestant, Protestant Reformation that took place. A hallmark of the Protestant Reformation is the phrase soli deo gloria, which means glory to God alone. In that era, indulgences were being sold, essentially, quote-unquote, forgiveness of your sins was being sold so that the church could build an enormous cathedral to the glory of themselves. Look at how glorified we are in this earth the pope in that in those days was all about his own glory glory here on this earth the hallmark of the reformation said no glory not to the church glory not to a man not to a pastor or a pope glory only goes to god all of the glory to god And so here as we read this prayer, we see one member of the Trinity talking to another member of the Trinity and he essentially says, Father, it is about time, the appointed time has come for us to be glorified. Look at verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth. How did Jesus glorify the Father? He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work of That you gave me to do. So Jesus glorifies, brings glory to the Father through being obedient, accomplishing the job. Finishing the job. What was the job? Saving God's people. So he says, here are these people whom you have given to me. I have now done the job. The job is accomplished. Well done. Job done. And I'm bringing glory to you through accomplishing, through finishing this work. Are you staying with me so far? We're getting to my point pretty soon. So, the Father is glorified through Jesus, through Jesus finishing the job. Now, how is the Son glorified? Well, we see that God Himself, as, as, as God is glorified through... This appointed time, this moment in which Christ will be lifted up. The glory of God is seen, first and foremost, in the crucifixion of Christ. But I want to dig into this, and I want to point out in particular how Jesus himself is glorified. Now, there are a number of ways, but there is one way that sticks out to me in verse 10. Let's start with verse 9. He says, I am praying for them. So here, Jesus, verses 1-8, through eight, talks about the glory of God. It's time. The appointed time has come. Let's glorify ourselves. Now I'm praying for them who have believed that you sent me. I am not praying for the world, meaning the lost in this moment, but I'm praying for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And then he goes on. He says, all mine are yours and all of yours are mine. Now look at the next line. He says, and I am glorified in them. What brings Jesus' glory are broken, train wrecked, failing, sinning, smelly human beings saved by God's grace. Built together, as a body. That's what brings Jesus glory. You know, buildings throughout history have been built to the glory of various individuals. Uh, The Taj Mahal was built to the glory of a third wife who was deceased. Uh, Castles all across Europe, maybe the Diberts saw a castle or two while you were over there. They were built, many of them, built as as, uh, love stories to the woman whom was loved by royalty. Right right here what we see is, is that God is building something. God is building the church. God is building a people. And Jesus is glorified through us being built. Coming together. Growing. Now not a church building, let's be clear. We're not talking about a Church building that brings glory to God. What brings glory to to Christ is not a building. It's not a great song that is written. It's not a worship song in which we really feel it. What brings glory to Christ is not moments in which in, in, uh, something just amazing happens and and, uh, and and we see a mirror. What what brings glory to Christ are failing, sinning, train wrecked human beings who are saved by grace. Growing hearts that were once ugly that are now turned and transformed and changed and they're becoming beautiful. An individual who was marked by darkness. Now the darkness has been exposed as he has stepped into the light and the light has transformed him and he's been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is what brings glory to Jesus. Saints being edified. So when we're praying about saints being edified, what we are primarily praying for is the glory of Jesus. We're praying that Jesus will be lifted up. We're praying that saints will be edified so that the world might see that Jesus is an incredible Savior, So now, how does Jesus pray for the saints to be edified? Well, let's take a look at it first. It's worth noting in verse 11 and verse 15, he points out that they are still in the world. Look at verse 11. He says, I'm praying, or I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Look at verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them in the world. So let's just be clear. Jesus is praying Not for the saints who have deceased and are with him now in heaven. He's praying for the saints who are still in the world. Being a Christian is at its core a transfer of citizenship. So you're no longer a citizenship of Mexico. You're now a citizen of uh, America. You're no longer a citizen of this world. We once were citizens. We were marked by this world our citizenship was here. We were governed by the thinking and the rules of the worldview that we are caught up in here in this fallen world. Are you tracking with me? So we were once citizens of this dark fallen world, and our mayor was the devil. Our citizenship at conversion is transferred to the kingdom of God. So now, Christians... Those of you who have repented, turned from your sin, you've received Christ, you've trusted in him, you have been given your transfer papers, you are no longer a citizen of this world, but you are a citizen of heaven, all right? Now, here's sort of the aha moment, we don't immediately move there. So for whatever reason in God's sovereignty, God doesn't simply save the elect and then bring them to heaven. Whatever In his sovereignty, he doesn't transfer the citizenship and immediately bring them home. But in God's providence and in his sovereignty, he transfers citizenship and more often than not, we've got at least a few years living here as foreigners in a strange land. Now we're going to talk about that in a few, or next week actually. We're going to go into more depth there. This is the point I'm trying to chase right now. In the world, John 16, in the world, you will have trouble. Because Jesus points out, we are not of the world. So we are in the world, but friends, this is no longer our home. And so because of that, because we are not of the world, in the world, you will have trouble. Why is it that Christians are always blindsided by trouble? Right? We, we're going along, we're doing our thing, we're worshiping, we're, we're, we're attending church, and all of a sudden, bam, trouble hits us, and we question God. What's going on? You never told me this would happen. God says, I, What? You never read John 16 33. If you open your Bible once in a while, you will know that in the world, Christians have trouble. Because this world is not our home. So so Jesus here is praying for Christians in this world because he loves them and he knows that in the world they will have trouble. And so as Jesus is praying for them, he prays, and I want to point out, he prays specifically in four ways. First, Jesus prays that the believers would be kept. We see this right there in verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to You. Holy Father, keep them in Your name. I was at (laughs) H&M. Why is that funny? I was shopping um, with my family, and Jess and the girls were around the corner. And I had had, Haddon in the stroller. And he was getting a little restless and wanted to get out, and so I unbuckled him, and he got out and stood literally right in front of me, and I'm watching him, and as soon as his feet touch the ground, he just darts, like, boom, and uh, goes around the, what do you call it, clothing rack? And so immediately out of my sight, so I go like this to get him, and he's gone. I mean, he's just not anywhere to be found. He disappeared. I thought, that, like, the baby rapture came. I don't know. But he is nowhere to be found. And after about 10 to 15 seconds of panic, I do find him running out the, the front door of H&M. Now, this is the first time my wife has heard this story. I strategically tell these stories in, in public settings. An imperfect father occasionally loses a child. (laughs) All right? Father's Day, by the way. That wasn't planned. Um, Thankfully, in my case, it was only for 10 to 15 seconds. But honestly, imperfect fathers, uh, as much as we uh, would, would not like to, occasionally we lose a child. A perfect father. Listen, God is a perfect father. A perfect father. Would a perfect father lose one child? A perfect father loses none. Listen, a perfect shepherd loses none. Imperfect shepherds would. But Jesus was the perfect shepherd, and there, while he was on earth, he, he said, I've, I've kept them. I am the good shepherd, and I have kept them. I have not lost any of my sheep. And Father, now as I'm leaving, perfect father, keep them. He says, keep them. Don't lose any of them. Now, our side of this, our responsibility is to abide in Christ. So we see in 1 John, the command for us to abide in Christ, meaning remain with him, meaning if you don't abide in Christ until the end, you will not be saved. I want you to hear that. If you do not abide in Christ until the end, you will not be saved. I don't care about the prayer that you prayed when you were six. If you don't abide, you will not be saved. Yet here we see the prayer from Christ to the Father is that we be kept and will a perfect father lose any of his children? No. Sometimes I believe that uh, because we believe this in our heads, we think casually about this, and we, we sort of go through life with a very casual relationship with God, casual relationship with Christ, and we really think nothing of abiding in Christ. We think nothing of remaining with Christ. Friends, you must abide with Christ. But here is the hope that we have. And this is the doctrine of the perseverance of saints. The hope that we have is that we will be kept in our abiding. Does that make sense? So we must remain. We must abide. The shepherd has kept us. And now he's saying, Father, keep them in their abiding. Keep them in your word. Christian, your hope this morning to remain is not in your ability. Your hope this morning to remain is the fact that God is a perfect Father, and He will not lose any of His sons, and He will not lose any of His daughters. He will keep you until the day of redemption. So Jesus prayed that the saints may be kept. Friends, pray, all right? We're going to talk about how to pray for each other. Pray that the saints may be kept. By God's power. The second thing Jesus prays for is that we would be fulfilled in His own joy. Look at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. In the world, John 16, you will have trouble, but I have, what's the rest of it? Overcome the world. In the world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Our normal course in this world, as citizens of this world, is to die old, cynical, and angry. That is the normal course, the way that the wind blows. Alright? In the world you will have trouble, but... I have overcome the world. This is what he's saying as he prays for us to have joy. He says, I pray that my joy will be fulfilled in them. Not that they will have some kind of joy that's mustered up uh, in and of their own strength, but that the joy of Christ will be fulfilled, come, brought to completion in us. This is the picture that we have. First, it is a declaration that you can have joy. Those of you who are suffering right now, you're going through times, seasons of of misery and unhappiness, friends, even in these seasons, you can have joy. And you can have joy because Jesus prayed for you to have joy, and Jesus not only prays for you to have joy, but Jesus supplies the joy that you can have. I pray, he says, that my joy will be fulfilled, will come to completion in them. Richard Baxter, as he was dying on his deathbed, he said, I have pain, yes, but I have peace. I have peace. Even in the midst of suffering, as we go through the troubles that this world will bring, We have joy. And friends, Jesus is glorified in this. Do you know that Jesus is glorified when you have his joy fulfilled in you? When you're happy in God? Let me illustrate it this way. My wife and I celebrated our 11th anniversary last month. And imagine after 11 years of being married. Imagine someone were to come along and say, hey, Joel, are you, uh, are you happy with Jess? Do you have joy in your life because you're married to her? And, and what if my response was, yes, I do. I have, a, a, like, incredible joy. Um, I, I love being with her because she brings me so much joy. And what if her response was, see, Joel, it's always about you, isn't it? It's always about your joy. She wouldn't have that response, would she? Because me, finding joy, like me, like I have joy, being, I like being with her because when I'm with her, I have joy that glorifies her, that makes much of her. So friends, as Jesus prays for us to have joy, even in that, what he's saying is, is make much of me. I've overcome the world. I've given you everything that you need. You're moving through this life and I will give you the joy. My joy will be made complete in you and that as you well up in joy makes much of me as your Savior. So Jesus prays that the believers will be kept. He prays that the believers will have joy. Thirdly, Jesus prays that the believers will be built up through being protected from the evil one. Look at verse 15. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Here, Jesus shows us that he knows where the real battle lies. When we talk about the fact that the world has troubles, Jesus knows that the real battle is not in the controversies. It's not in the whirlwind of uh, pains and problems that we face. It's not in job failure. It's not in... Uh, educational failure, marriage failure. I mean, all of these things that can sort of hit us naturally in the world. Jesus knows that the real problem that we face, the real battle that we face is with, in the original language, the evil. The evil, the personification of evil Here, Jesus believes that evil, wickedness exists, that evil is real, that it seeks your destruction. Do you see how this prayer is building? So here, keep them. What is it that can destroy us? It is evil. Um, Give them joy. What is it that can rob our joy? It is evil that exists in this world, seeking to devour whom it may. But Jesus here shows us that he knows that evil is not just a force. Evil is not just a theory or an idea or a feeling, but evil is a person. Protect them from the evil one. In C.S. C- lewis's Screwtape Letters, it's uh, a fictional account of a senior demon giving instructions to a junior demon. The senior demon, as he instructs the junior, he says, look, I'm going to paraphrase it. If you really want to get them, if you really want to get these people, you've got to convince them that you don't, you don't, don't exist. And when they uh, believe that you don't exist, then they're in the best place to be attacked. Friends, the most horrifying reality today of the devil, Satan, is not something you would see in a horror movie. It's not somebody just being overtaken and they've got like weird things coming out of their mouth and they're, I don't know, you you get the picture, all right? Like their eyes kind of have this thing going on. It's not a horror movie picture. It's not faucets being turned on and off. The most horrifying reality today in our culture, I think, is this, that Across the board, even in circles where the Bible is claimed to be preached, where the average member, church member comes in and sits and listens, the average uh, professing Christian believes less and less in the reality that there is a devil, that there is a Satan. The, the personification of evil, this being that seeks to devour us, who has a legion of demons that he is working through and he is deceptive and he is cunning. Friends, if we, if we, if we uh, can get to the place where we don't believe that evil is really that big of a deal, that sin is not that big of a deal, That giving into a temptation is not that, if we get to that place, what we are essentially saying is that the evil one is really not that evil. It's not that big of a deal. And he will destroy. He wants to devour you. Jesus prayed that while you are in this world, that the real battle being fought is this battle against the evil one, that he prayed that you will be kept from the evil one. He is a liar he will deceive you he will trick you I've told this story before and I'll tell it again because it's a good story there's there was a mother and a daughter who were starving and the daughter said to the mother mommy would Jesus allow us to starve would God allow us to starve to death the mother's response was of course not of course He wouldn't let us starve. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't worship a God who would let my daughter starve. I couldn't worship a God. If anything would cause me to walk away from God, it would be to see a God allow my daughter, uh, 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 her, her body grow frail and starve to death. If anything would, uh, would cause me to question God's goodness, it would be this. And the daughter's response was, Mommy, even if he does, we must still love him. You see, the daughter knows that Satan is a trickster. The daughter knows that Satan will use anything. Satan will use the suffering that you're going through to turn your face from God. Satan will use the problems that you're facing to turn your face from God. He will use the brokenness that exists in other people, in other church members, getting upset with somebody, to turn you away from God. Satan will use uh, me, you getting upset with me over something, to turn you away from God. He will use whatever he can. What I'm saying right now is that Satan is a trickster, and he will deceive. He will seek to deceive you. Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one. Friends, pray that the Christians, that the saints, that fellow members will be kept from the evil one. Lastly, Jesus prays that the church will be built up through being sanctified in truth. Look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Everybody say truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Then he says, your word is truth. You know, what's interesting about that word truth. Everybody say truth again. The Greek is aletheia. Does that sound familiar? It's a noun, not an adjective. What does that mean? Well, it means he's not saying your word is true. Like compared to other standards, we can look at the Bible and we can see we can compare it to this and that and we can say it's true adjective it's a true it's a true word no he says your word is noun alethia truth your word is truth meaning it is the standard of truth when we talk about truth at the core we're talking about the Bible when we say truth is hard to know, what we're saying is the Bible then would be hard. Truth. This is the standard, this is the measure of truth. And he's saying, may them, may, may your, these people be sanctified. That's a word that means set apart for God's use, all right? May they be set apart for God's worth through the truth. What's crazy about today is we believe uh, uh, the, the opposite is reality. You see, all through this passage, Jesus, Jesus is praying that we might be one. Did you catch that when I, when I read it earlier? That we might be one. We might be one as you and I are one. And then he says, in this desire for them to be one, he says, and so set, sanctify them, mean, meaning set them apart. Uh, let's let this oneness be seen through truth. Today we say doctrine is divisive. Today we say truth divides. And so we must minimize truth so that we might have unity. We must minimize truth so that we might have oneness. Friends, we come across some very difficult truths in the pages of the Bible, don't we? The Bible, don't we? We must minimize these things so that we can have unity. Jesus, Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm thinking the entire opposite. Flip, flip it upside down. We find unity through the truth. Visit uh, Christians in India. Visit Christians in China. Visit Christians in, in Mexico. All across the globe, what you'll find is incredible unity. I mean, sure, linguistic differences, uh, cultural differences, worship style differences, differences on an understanding of maybe some, uh, spiritual gifts or uh, uh, the way a church should be structured. But there is incredible unity among believers around the world, and that is because we are being sanctified in the truth. We all have the same standard of truth. We all are in this big house and we have come through the only door and that is the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Sanctify them in the truth. Friends, Jesus prayed that we would grow in our truth. So pray that saints might be edified through being built up, set apart through truth. That we might sit. I mean, we, we, we sit here for like an hour every Sunday and you, you listen to me and I thank God for that. Just trying to teach the truth of the Bible. We sit in house communities and we talk about it more and we sit in Sunday school classes and we talk about... It. It's simply because we need to grow in our understanding of truth. If we lack oneness, it's because we lack truth. If we lack love, it's because we lack truth. So pray that we might be edified, sanctified, set apart by the truth guys i am asking you this morning to pray for other christians pick your head up see the horizon of what god is doing get a membership directory if you need one to pray through the faces of people that are members of this church and people that aren't members get their names and take their picture like figure out ways to pray for other people figure out ways to pray for people specifically and then as well as broadly Pray for Christians across Baltimore that you don't know. Pray for Christians across the globe that you'll never meet, but you will know them in heaven. Pray that the saints might be edified. Pray in the way that Jesus prayed. Pray that they might be kept. Look, if one is lost, then we lose the whole thing. He says there, he says, pray that they might be kept so that they might be one. Meaning, if, if we pull out a block, if we lose a block, the whole body falls apart. So pray for Fred to be kept, because if we lose Fred, you get the picture? Pray for Montreal to be kept, because if we lose Montreal, the whole body falls apart. Pray for Ivan to be kept, because if we lose Ivan, the whole body falls apart. Pray for Melissa to be kept, because if we lose Melissa, the whole body falls apart. You get the picture? So we pray that the saints might be kept. We pray that they might have. the the joy of Christ fulfilled in them, that they would be protected from the evil one and that they would be sanctified, set apart in the truth of the Scriptures. Guys, we need renewal among us. We need renewal among us. We need the fire relit among us. We need a sense of desperation in the average member of, Of this church not in the leaders only but in everyone we need a desperation let me illustrate the kind of desperation that we need I heard a story of a man whose wife said that she was leaving him and in that moment he didn't just get on his knee and say would you please rethink it in the moment he didn't just sit down and write her a note In that moment, he fell into her, onto his knees, his head in her lap, tears, his arms wrapped around her waist, begging her to stay. That's desperation. If God were to leave you, would your whole world fall apart? If Christ were to say, I'm rolling out, Would everything fall apart and nothing would make sense? Or would life for you go on as normal? Are we desperate for Jesus? Friends, the good news is that Christ has said, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. We don't cling to Him because He's threatening to remove himself, we cling to him because he has loved us with an incredible love. He has died for your sins on the cross. He has taken the judgment of God for you so that you might be saved. And all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus are bought by his blood, adopted as children of God. Friends, our praying might need to begin with praying for yourself. You might need to say, God, break my heart. Create in me a sense of desperation. Create in me a a desire for your glory, because frankly, I don't care. And as God creates in you a love for Christ and a desire that Christ might be lifted up, friends, I believe that your praying for the saints to be edified would be a natural expression. Pray. That the saints would be edified so that Jesus might be seen as a glorious Savior. Let us pray. Father, we are desperate for You. You are our only hope in this world. In this world, we have trouble, yet Christ has overcome this world. We thank You for that truth. And we ask that You create in us a sense of desperation for Jesus and a desire for his glory, so that we might then pray for one another, that the saints may be edified, built up, so that Jesus might be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.